Welcome to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. I'm Kim Aquaviva. Today's episode, Kate. Hi, welcome to MDASH. Oh, hi. Thank you so much, Kim. Thanks. And um, first, if you could introduce yourself and uh, let listeners know what name you like to be called and what pronouns you'd prefer people use to refer to you. Perfect. So my name is Catherine Wolofsky, um, and you can call me Kate. And uh, pronouns, I'm open to a number of them. I'm uh, genderqueer, so um, they is wonderful. Um, she is all right. And uh, sometimes in writing, I use uh, V ververs as well. So um, free game on any of those, but they is my favorite. Okay, awesome. Well, you know what? We like to use people's favorites. So they it is. Thanks for joining us today. I wanted to talk with you about your experiences with healthcare, both as an individual who receives healthcare, but also as a provider. And so I thought I'd just start by asking, um, what experiences have you had where you felt like you were somehow different and you were on the receiving end of healthcare? Mm, um, well, that's um, most experiences I've had. Um, so I have uh, multiple sclerosis, MS, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and primary immune deficiency. Um, I also have something called hypopituitarism, which means that my pituitary gland doesn't work, which means I don't um, produce my own hormones, so I have to get those um, somewhere else. That that occurred as a result of an MS exacerbation um, about 10 years ago, so I got my menopause out of the way. My MS is, um, um, I went, I've, I've been through the full range of all disability equipment. I've been unable to walk. I've had wheelchairs, scooters, crutches, rollators, everything in between. Um, and I would say that most of the doctors that I've, and I've seen a lot of doctors in the U S and Canada, um, um, Australia, some from, some from France and, um, most of the time, actually, a lot of the things that I went through were missed or were chalked up to something else. Interesting. Um, and so I wasn't diagnosed with MS until 30, um, or I was, it was just before 30. I was 29. And I had been sick for so long. We can trace symptoms back to um, fairly early in my childhood, actually. Um, I was having urinary hesitancy and um, a, a pain level that you know, children don't know. And, you know, you don't know until someone tells you that things are different. Um, but I, goodness gracious, I was treated for so many symptoms of things and misdiagnosed. But when, when I was really had my big exacerbation where I was diagnosed, um, I was in um, Connecticut visiting my grandmother and she had just had um, her first hip replacement um, at the time she was 80. Um, and I was there for her because I had a background also in movement therapy. So I was, I was caregiving <laughs> and, um, you know, getting up with her in the middle of the night. And, um, for me, when someone is in the hospital, if, if I can, I provide all the meals, um, from breakfast, lunch, dinner, um, to wash her hair, attended her PT appointments, and the first night she slept through the night, that was when I had a big Laramide sign, which is basically like being electrocuted, <laughs> like a wad wow. up your spine. 
and I thought I'd herniated discs in my back because I had done hmm. that before lower down. And I went to the ER and um, unfortunately I sounded too knowledgeable <laughs> because um, I was living in Canada at the time. So I had no insurance. I was self-pay. And I went in and I said, you know, I have this horrible pain. I'm pretty sure that I've herniated discs. I haven't slept in two days. Um, and I was like shallow breathing. I said, you know, like I just need an MRI. And um, the the first thing that the doctor said was, what makes you think you're in pain? And um, then he's and I was sort of blinking. And then I explained and he said, and he said, well, we're not going to do an MRI. We're not going to do a, a not, no imaging is necessary. You, you just... You know, go in the other room, you know, see the nurse. And I go in the other room and they start handing me ibuprofen. And, and the level of pain is something I can't describe because it's so awful at times that you either laugh or you lose your breath. Um, I wasn't yet used to it. Once you get used to it, it's sort of like, you know, this like icky roommate that like makes a mess everywhere. <laughs> you just have to get used to it. <laughs> but um, anyway, luckily, um, there was another doctor that I knew in the area who called, I ended up with ha having my doctor who was out in California <laughs> order like head to toe MRI and discovered like that I had multiple lesions, that it was pretty advanced and um, sent me home with a whole bunch of Oxycontin. I mean, that that's kind of the beginning, but before that, there were so many other things um, that, yeah, just were missed from a lack of, a lot of it was a lack of listening. And probably no one putting pieces together, I would guess. Yes, that is so true. And, you know, and sometimes, um, you know, I, and I will say that, that um, my experience as a, as a patient, um, you know, over time, I did find some doctors that I loved and we became very good friends. And I've spent a lot of time around doctors. And then in the course of my own education, I... I have so much empathy for the things that doctors, nurses, all medical professionals, mental health professionals don't know. And so now I can look back and say, wow, you wouldn't have known to ask that. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think your perspective as a patient probably influences how you think about your work as a provider. Oh. How, how have those lessons or the, the path that you've traveled, how has that informed how you interact with patients? Oh my gosh, it's everything. I mean, it's it is a hundred percent a direct result. Um, I mean, I for me, MS is the biggest gift in the whole wide world um, because I was I was doing working at a job I really didn't like, <laughs> and um, you know I I wasn't I was you know doing the my first degree was in business I was doing a business thing and and I really wasn't happy. Um, and, um, of course it took like a gigantic, <laughs> um, a gigantic lightning rod to, um, to do something about, um, changing things up. But, um, so I actually ended up getting diagnosed with secondary progressive MS because, um, I spent a number of years just, you know, barely like not even recovering and another exacerbation. Um, and, um, it is fascinating, um, how much, how much that was actually exactly why my experience as a patient is the reason why I decided to go back to school as soon as I could. Um, because I, so I spent, um, almost every day, um, in an IV clinic, um, for like a year. And, um, 
I was, the doctor would always ask why I was so happy. And, and I said, well, you know, happy is a choice. You know, I really don't want to share this pain with anyone. Um, I'd like it to just be, um, mine and not theirs. And so he started coaching me into a peer counseling role. And I saw so many people coming through there. Um, and I also had a lot of people wanting me to talk to, oh my goodness, my, my sister has MS. Can you talk to her? My, this person has MS. Can you, can you just tell her to do exactly what you do? Cause you do it well and they suck. So, um, I quickly realized that, you know, I wouldn't want somebody, you know, I, I got a lot of people calling me telling me, listen, this aromatherapy, it's amazing. You just put the lavender on the MS is going to go away. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you just rub the crystal three times, right. tell yourself you do not have MS, you will not have MS. Definitely don't call yourself disabled because then you're really fucked. So, <laughs> um, so, um, so I realized, wow, it's, it's everyone is having their own experience of this condition and it is in different ways disabling to everybody. And so it is literally why I chose to became, become a counselor. And I didn't even intend to work with other people with disabilities, but it was the fact that I realized that nowhere in my textbooks would there be more than maybe a paragraph any materials on disability were extremely outdated or incorrect. And it was nearly impossible for me to make it through um, my master's program because accommodations in academia really aren't very accommodating. So, so, so I, I, I heard you laughing. I am. You know, I'm laughing in, a, in an awkward recognition that what you're saying is so true. Um, mm. For me, I mean, I, so I try to go the swing the opposite way when it comes to accommodations is I try to make it so that my classroom is inclusive enough that students who have disabilities don't even end up having to ask for an accommodation because there's already room there um, for students to be able to do the work in the way that's most comfortable for themselves. But I hear all the time from students that that's not their lived experience in other schools, um, and that's not necessarily common. Um so I'm sorry that, that that's been your experience. I hate that. You know what? I mean, on the one hand, yes. And when I was going through it, it was, it was so awful because I can't think of, I mean, I've had accommodations since I was a child, but, you know, for things like other symptoms that we just didn't know what it was. Like I had um, Epstein-Barr virus very badly. And so I had some extra um, accommodations um, for rest um, during school. Um, but you know, over time, um, and the intensity of what was demanded, um, in the course of my education, I mean, I also have optic neuritis, so it, it doesn't really work very well if your eyes don't work Yeah, <laughs> and, well, and staring at the screen or staring at, you know, books. Yeah. And, but you know, it was, um, so, I, I mean, I, I always call myself my own N equals one experiment. So I'm always sort of looking for new ways to do things. And um, I, all, on the one hand, what I went through was a lot, but in the end, actually, even right now, I'm writing a curriculum on including disability as diversity in counselor higher education. Um, 
to kind of bring everyone to the table and talk about it more openly because, um, I mean, I, yeah. And, and, and it, it really, um, increased my passion for, um, advocacy and research. Um, without that, I wouldn't be where I am. Well, I was so excited when I saw that you are pursuing, um, credentialing as an ASEX certified sex therapist. So I'm an ASEX certified sex educator um, and got my PhD in human sexuality. So I was so excited when I saw that in your bio. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit about what led you down that path. Yeah. Um, again, it comes back to disability. <laughs> so um, so definitely um, going through menopause right away, um, very just instantly. Um, the only conversation that I, and of course, then I had to go through hormone replacement therapy. So, um, I've had more or less of every single hormone, um, which, which makes, and so I'm actually, I, I'm a gender specialist. Um, and, um, and, and it definitely like, um, you know, for me, gender is something that is like the female description of, uh, in this culture of what a female is supposed to do and look like was inaccessible for me a lot of the time. Um, and so I, goodness, it's like, it's, it's actually quite amazing working with my, with my trans people because, um, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a world that is mine too. And, but just in a different way, um, a, a different and similar, it just depends on, um, you know, which, which hormone we're, we're, um, we're trying to enhance or which one we're trying to, um, suppress. So it's, um, it's, really the big thing that led me, um, to become a, on the path to be ASEC certified is my husband, who's also disabled. Um, he had a motorcycle accident, um, a number of years ago. And the only conversation that he had, um, about, um, his sexuality and he had his, you know, he had a TBI internal organs, his pelvis was crushed. Um, it was a motorcycle accident, um, and his, his, uh, femur was dislocated and he had all kinds of pins and screws and nerve damage. And so the first doctor he saw, he was in the hospital for, um, two months, I believe. And I wasn't with him at the time, but he, he went with his mother cause he, he really couldn't drive. He actually, he has complex regional pain syndrome, which is, mm. um, horror of horrors pain, um, and foot drop. So his left foot is affected my right foot is broken and has CRPS like pain. I have brain lesions. He has a TBI. So together we have two good feet and almost a whole brain. Um, <laughs> it sounds like a really good match though. Yes. And so, um, you know, both of us, um, and I was actually, I was married to someone else at the time when I was first diagnosed and, you know, we're, and we're wonderful friends now. He's just a fantastic person. Russell, if you're listening, um, <laughs> thank, thank you for your, um, thank you for your ongoing friendship. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing. Um, but you know, neither of us knew at the time, um, all of the things that were happening to me, there was really no book I could read that could describe what I was going through. And there was no, definitely no doctors knew the only conversation I had about sex, um, was, you know, you should probably think about whether you want to adopt or you want to go do the surrogacy thing. Like wow. So it's just in the context of whether you can reproduce and create another human and not sexual pleasure. Right. Because I'm like a vessel for, right. for with, the, with the sole purpose of popping out babies. Wow. And, and I just like, it was a shocker for me. And Aaron, his only conversation with his mother in the room, um, who's 
really cool too, but it was just strange. And his, this, his medical file was like, you know, just stacks and stacks. And the doctor goes through it all and looks at him and goes, um, does it work? And he said, he said like, well, what do you, what do you mean? And she just points down at her lap and, and he was confused. And and she was like, what do you, and he points again and she says, yes. And she said, well, do you have a girlfriend or a wife? Wow. So there's some assumptions made right there immediately. Normative assumptions. Um, and like very, very, um, marginalizing. And, um, and then, and, and he says, well, no. And she said, well, how do you know? And I mean, so by the time, like, it's, it's just, it defies imagination, um, you know, that this is a very accomplished doctor who's very skilled actually in many, many, many ways. However, you know, so when Aaron and I started sharing our stories, and by the way, like, I mean, I've never had, I've never had such incredible sex as after I become dis- became disabled. <laughs> but people never think of that, right? Like some really? clinicians don't understand that no. sexuality is something that is an integral part of all people, regardless of the level of disability or ability and age, but people don't think oh. of that. That Oh, that is so, so, so true. And actually I was excited to talk to you about because of your experience as well. But um, it is so true. And there's so much, um, you know, p- people don't realize that like, you know, a baby in the womb is, is sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's, if we're, if we're alive, we're a sexual being. And um, it is, um, and, and also just the importance, you know, like, I mean, I have, I have a vagina. And if there's not some stimulation there, I'm going to end up with prolapse at some mm-hmm. And, um, and so I'm aware of that. It's like, these are muscles and this is a part of our body that needs lubrication that needs, um, needs to be taken for a walk. Um, sometimes literally, I mean, figuratively speaking, cause sometimes I can't walk, but, right. um, I think for, for Aaron and I, a lot of it was, um, there was so much that, um, it'd be like surprise, my arm doesn't work today. Or like, you know, we, we, because we were both so just, we'd been, we had so much taken away from us physically. And, you know, that when, you know, when we met, um, it was like, we didn't, we didn't judge anything. And, it, and it was like, the only big deal is like, wait, are we, we're alive? Okay, great. You know, when I was younger, I would have looked at my body and I would, I'm like, you know, that's like, I don't like my stomach. I can't wear that. It's a little like soft or my, maybe my butt's getting too big or I definitely do not look like, you know, the sports, sports illustrated model. I don't look like the Instagram babe, um, at all. Um, I tried, um, to, you know, to my detriment, um, to look a certain way, um, when I was younger. Um, but this just, I, I led me to really embrace my body and then in counselor education, um, I realized that, you know, a, a lot of most of the students were terrified to mention sex, particularly to a disabled person. And so actually I did a preliminary study um, during my program and she won an award for that. And it kind of, that really kind of set me on the research path because I realized there was just no, I couldn't really find great literature about like, you know, how as a counselor should you approach this situation? It was all very like, um, 
it, it all read like a playbook, most of mm-hmm. it, you know, like there, you're probably familiar with that Roland model of, you know, yes. ability. And, oh my gosh. And I was like, listen, I am not a checkbox. And if you approach someone with MS, like this is not going to work at all. <laughs> Not at all. So um, it's just, you know, we are as different as flavors of ice cream. Um, And there's just like no, no, no limit to the spectrum of the rainbow of what can happen. Um, So in any case, um, what I started doing is um, I asked um, counselors, doctors, nurses about what their training was in, um, in, human sexuality, and then what their training was in terms of working with disabled people with their sexuality. And a lot of doctors actually told me, oh, no, no, that's not my department. That's what you do. And a lot of the therapists were like, well, that's something we refer to a doctor. And I realized, oh, my gosh. So I joined ASEC, and it turns out, I don't know if you know um, Stephen Braveman, if you ever met him. I know him by reputation, but I haven't met him. He's, he is, um, he is my mentor and, um, and supervisor and, um, just has, it's just been one of the most incredible, um, professional relationships. Um, I, I value his, um, opinion so much. Um, he wrote the very first curriculum for people with intellectual disabilities that teach sex ed to people with either who are blind, deaf, or both which I actually have sitting next to me somewhere. Uh, and, it's, and it's fascinating how, as I look at that, which was developed like, I think late seventies, and I look at what's available, and I go, well, well, like what happened? What, you know, where are we missing the mark of, um, of understanding this and understanding that, you know, um, good, goodness. And then of course, um, so in any case, after that preliminary study, I met Dr. Porges, Dr. Stephen Porges, um, um, the uh, famous for polyvagal theory and mm-hmm. um, explaining, kind of explaining what happens to the body um, during, during a trauma or stressful event. Um, and he gave a talk um, about, he, he has a lab at the Kinsey Institute where I now work um, and called the Trauma Stress Research Consortium. And he's doing, so Alfred Kinsey collected sexual histories, right? Like we know that any queer person knows that, yes. right? And we're, and we're <laughs> we clap. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, and then, um, but then, um, so what Kinsey did for sexual histories, Dr. Purchase was trying to do, or is doing, and we are doing now for trauma histories. Um, And this came up, like he spoke at a conference and um, I've actually been following his work since I was very young. (laughs) um, um, I've had a research passion for a long time. He spoke, it was, it was just after the whole Dr. Blasey Ford situation, who was actually a professor at my school. And he said, you know, like, here we are as, you know, clinicians, researchers, we cannot explain to people that trauma is more than just an event. And so I said, okay, well, I want to just, whatever he's doing, I want to make sure it gets done (laughs) because I've also worked in like nonprofit, um, and I still do as well, because that's what I consider part of my advocacy is nonprofit work. And so, so um, I went up to him and we spoke and then he read a paper that I wrote um, about the lack of disability and sexuality education. And he said, like, you know what? I 
I want to mentor you and I want to do a study with you because I realized I left disability out. So That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so in the course, like we became, you know, we became good friends. And then the data scientist, um, Dr. Yasek Kolash, who I work very, very closely with, um, who's, who's at Kinsey, um, is just like, he, he is a data guru and he doesn't want to do clinical work and I want to do clinical work and research. So it's a great fit. Um, and actually Dr. Chris Walling from who's president of the, um, U.S. Association of Body Psychotherapy, which is where I heard Dr. Porges speak, um, kind of like has just been like a really wonderful experience because actually Dr. Um, Dr. Walling has experience, um, a lot of experience working with Alzheimer's. So we all kind of came together to look at what we're missing and how do we go about explaining it. And of course, we can't get get public funding for a study like that. But what I'm really, I'm so excited about it because we're actually, um, we are, we, we just launched um, this study, which I've now been working on for like a year and a half. <laughs> and it's a labor a, of love, it sounds like. Oh, it, it really is. Because what started it, what I thought it was going to be initially was, you know, choose some questionnaires that already exist and then we'll put that together. But then COVID happened. And um, you know, I like this beautiful collaboration with the data scientists. You know, I was all interested in asking people to, all the touchy feely stuff and and listening to them talk and watching them. And but I really gained a lot of appreciation for what Yasek does because we can kind of I can say like, okay, wait, what can we change here and have it still be valid and reliable? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when COVID came along. We expanded it, and now it's um, we just called it body, mind, and COVID nineteen. It's not about disability necessarily, because I really wanted to look at like how what is it that disability really is? It's limitation um, plus something you want to do or experience or think and feel, and a barrier, and the barrier is culture, and. Um, and, and all this, all this past intergenerational stuff. And so really it's just, we ask about limitations, about sexual pleasure, like having that freedom to not just say, does it work, which Mm -hmm. all disability and sexuality studies do. I mean, I'm overgeneralizing. And so I apologize to all researchers, but let's just say it it ain't easy to find. Mm -hmm. So no, there's a, definitely a lack of good questions there that are focused on pleasure in particular. There's so much fun, so much emphasis on function defined in a really narrow way by clinicians. Okay. And, and particularly when you think about the penis, um, a lot of studies seem to treat it like a light switch, like it either works or it doesn't, as opposed to um, looking at mm. whether it does what the person wants it to be able to do to help them feel the way they want to feel which is very different. Um, So yes, I I totally agree with you. That is so beautifully said. And I think that's really, that is so important because it doesn't matter how the body works or doesn't work. Pleasure, I mean, like, you know, we know from spinal cord injuries that like, you know, you can have a surrogate erogenous zone. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's more about, it's about that intimacy with your own body, with others. It's just, um, you know, if you have some physical or mental limitations. It just means you have to do more self-exploration. 
Do you know Mitch Tepper? I um, do. Yeah. So Mitch went to school with me. He and I were in the same doctoral program. Um, and I interviewed him. I want to say it was maybe my second or third podcast episode ever. And he talked a lot about... Um, about folks with spinal cord injuries being able to experience orgasm, even with just touching the ear. And yeah. it's just a really great conversation about helping people think beyond this idea that everything is about tab A in slot B <laughs> equals sex, which is so often how people think of it. Um, so yeah, so I loved that episode and Mitch is amazing. I, yeah, I, I listened to it actually, because uh, he is, so when I first joined AFECT, um, and I, I just happen to be lucky that Stephen Braveman lives like his office was right next to my office. So, wow. Oh, that's lucky. So, so he's been my complete, he's been my supervisor from the very beginning. Um, so in any case, um, he, uh, so I went on the ASEC listserv and I just sent an email out to everyone. And I said, who is in the disability and sexuality space? And I got two emails. One was from Mitch and one was from Beverly Whipple. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and, that is awesome. And they were so amazing. Um, and actually Beverly was a big, um, she was an early inspiration to do research actually um, in some of our conversations. Um, but yeah, I just, and, and um, it, it's, it's such a needed area. And I think particularly right now when everyone is kind of stuck at home and feeling very stuck at home and all of a sudden there's, you know, there is, um, you know, you're faced with a bit more of yourself and your body and your, whether you have a partner or don't, um, or partners, and there's a whole new attention that's needed, like things that can't be mm -hmm. hidden. Um, right. And, and I, I wish I could remember who tweeted this. Maybe two months ago, I saw a tweet from someone and they were talking about how being quarantined in the, in a house with, I don't remember if it was their children or their adult parents, mm -hmm. but they were saying, this is the longest stretch that they've been trapped in their house, unable to masturbate because no one ever leaves. Yeah. Like, you know, like the parent or no one ever leaves. Everyone's in the same house all the time. And that, that may seem like a small thing, but for folks, it could be a real stressor. Oh, no, that that's major. And in fact, actually, um, our study actually addresses that. Um, really? Oh, that, that's excellent. Yeah. So we actually, we had some freedom to come up with some questions, which I mean, every question was crafted like, um, with, um, you know, in consultation with members of the community that it's asking about, um, and cross-checking with, um, with different cultures, different races, um, as to what would be, okay. So we did our, it, you know, it's an international study. So I really, um, I've seen so much research about, you know, LGBTQ people and disabled people of, that it's not representative. So, yes. um, I really wanted it to be totally inclusive and, um, it's, it, it's, um, and if anyone takes it and finds something not inclusive, I would love to know about it because that would be an opportunity to learn. Um, and I, it, but it's, um, you're right though, about the privacy thing. Um, even, you know, even roommates are just mm -hmm. worried about masturbation time. And well, it is funny though. Like I, I consider myself a very open person. I talk about sex all the time. I've talked about sex on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, I've talked about sex in a million interviews, 
and, you know, I'm a sex educator. So I am quarantined at home with my 20 year old son who, you know, he's, he went off to college freshman year and was in Boston. And, you know, there was always times when he wasn't in the house mm-hmm. and now he's been in the house. He has left the house three times since March, twice to go to CVS, once to vote all three times he was with me. Um, and his room is directly above mine. And I found myself as an adult, like I'm a 48 year old woman and I became acutely aware of how loud the Hitachi <laughs> magic wand is. That thing is loud. It's like a lawnmower. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. and I don't have a shame factor as is evidenced by the fact I'm talking about a vibrator on my podcast, but I have found myself cringing. Like what if my adult son hears me? And then I think, well, for f- folks that have a lot more shame around this, yes. I bet this is causing them stress. Like for me, it just causes me a little anxiety, but it doesn't stop me. <laughs> but for folks who feel some shame, I could see this as being a real limiting factor for people. Oh my gosh, it is so much. I mean, I've had, I've actually had clients like being scared to like order a sex toy for the first time. Oh. And, but the, so the funny thing is actually we end up moving in with my mother. Um, during the quarantine, because we were, we were rent, we live very close by um, to both of our moms, actually, who were amazing. Um, but uh, our lease was up and our, we had stairs and we also had in-home care um, at the time. And we realized that it just wouldn't be safe for me because I'm like, I'm like the female, I'm almost, I'm not quite a bubble person, but let's just say it would be a safer place for me. Um, mm-hmm. So when I go outside, but when moving into my mother's, we could have a ground floor. Um, and luckily there's an office space for me right across from that. There's a bedroom. Um, but her bedroom is kind of like right above ours. Oh no. (laughs) Um, I used to sing opera, so I don't keep, I don't hold it in. I'm loud. And (laughs) (laughs) once you get into tantric breathing, then then like then there's my husband screaming the knee and like what if we want to get a paddle out and <laughs> then like then you know like and then there's just like you know all sorts of, like vibrators and like, like flushing sounds and so, so like you know my husband carrying the like waterproof blanket back and forth every day to watch going across the living room and um you can tell I, I don't have a filter about this either um <laughs> has your mom asked you any questions or commented on noise yet um no actually so before we moved in I actually said you know what the one thing that is really important that you know just for our marriage for our relationship is that we're not going to hold back um making noise and I just want for you one thing that's really important for me to say everything else we can navigate but I if I hold back it will be detrimental to my health mm-hmm. my husband's health and our relationship and so she said I hope you don't <laughs> oh, and, you know what I bet it brings her a measure of joy to know that you're happy you, you know it really has it's actually brought us all so my mom's disabled too um, it's really funny, actually. We have like, she says, she goes, well, we live in a th- a three th- a three disabled people, two disabled dog, and one non disabled dog home. Oh, <laughs> so well, we, that sounds like a fun home, though. It it is, and it's actually it's brought us all. You know, we've all had to work together, help each other out, and I think my favorite um, sex story about my mom and living here is. I was taking a SAR, which is for- I know those. I I loved my SAR. It was amazing. 
I know. Like I'm, I'm actually, I'm interested in developing one um, at some point. Um, but um, so anyway, I was taking this R and online and I, I didn't know my mother was going to walk into the room, but she'd been on a call with, um, you know, with, with someone that, you know, she was, it was like some negotiation thing. And, um, you know, for lack of, it will just name this person, John. And, um, and she had, it was just, it was, it had been an icky situation and she wanted to just get it over with. And um, I'm in the czar and I'm watching a video of two seven-year-olds having sex and I'm watching the video and my mother comes into the room and just bursts the door and goes, I did it with John. Oh no. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I'm looking at her and like, mom, I'm, I'm watching some seven-year-olds having sex. This is actually pretty funny. <laughs> Say that. She goes, okay, well, I won't bother you. <laughs> oh my God. Do you know what is so funny? As you said, the video of two 70 year olds having sex, I think I know what video you're talking about. Because I bet, (laughs) yeah, I bet they are still using, you know, the same set of videos that they use in SARS. I remember of all of the films I saw uh, in my SAR, and this was, my God, goodness, like mid 1990s, the Mm. one with the two older adults was the one that I remembered. And the reason was the story that Bill Staten was my professor and Bill Staten told the story of the couple. I have no idea if the story is true or not, but I've never forgotten it. He, when we were all processing it, one of us in the group said it was just really touching to see this couple and see this love and the connection. And we all made the assumption they were married. And, um, and I, again, I don't know if the story was apocryphal or not, but it was powerful. He said, no, no, they weren't married one of them was in a was married to someone else and the spouse died shortly before filming and it was really important to i don't remember if it was a woman or man to still be in the film and so these were two members of the same church and they'd never had sex before it was the first time they'd had sex mm. um and that was the story that bill told us and it blew my mind because I was like, oh, wait a minute. No, 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 no. That's not what I was thinking. I had this whole story. They were this nice older married couple and it forever changed the way that I thought about making assumptions about people. I love hearing that because, you know, it's so funny. Like, you know, and so a lot of people think like, oh, well, you know, like just because you're queer, just because you're a lesbian, just be- like you must just never right. make assumptions. But no, we have to check. I, like every day, I'm checking in with myself. Like, wait, did, like, did I make assumptions about that? But that couple, I have to say, of all the videos that I saw, that was the most beautiful, wasn't it? It was I, amazing. Oh, I just like the 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 care that they had for each. Like, mm-hmm. it, it was like I just it, it actually reminded me of sex with my husband because there's just there was an appreciation and like an honoring of each other's Mm -hmm. bodies and it was a beautiful video right i know i know so someday i've got to find out if that is the real story or if it's just the story that bill told us as an educational teaching point i'm glad if it's not the true story i'm glad he didn't tell us the true story because it really shaped the way that i thought about sex moving forward um, because I really had told myself this lovely story in my head about this couple having been married for 50 years. And he was like, no, no, that was their very first time. And I was like, what is going on? Um, when I was going through the SAR, I told my parents about the SAR and my dad still to this day, probably every three months 
makes a joke about my PhD because he taught, not in a disrespectful way, but he says, you know, if someone has to get a PhD, getting a PhD, watching those movies, he still remembers watching those movies. And I was like, dad, it wasn't just movies. There was a lot of work, um, but it still makes me laugh when he <laughs> teases me about it. That's absolutely adorable. Oh, so when you think about what you wish people knew or understood about people with disabilities and sex and sexuality, or just in general, what do you wish healthcare providers understood? Um, that um, that we're still people too, um, and that it's. Um, I'm not going to say that it's a different approach because actually no matter whether or not you're disabled or you're not, um, it, it, it's actually the same approach, but I actually wish that healthcare providers knew to check their own assumptions mm-hmm. and to slow down and to definitely not assume that things don't work or that you are feeling uh, badly about it. You know, that, that you, that you somehow like, I, I sometimes when I tell my story about all the things I'm through, Oh, that's so horrible. Oh, oh, it's so terrible. Oh, that was awful. I don't need you to say that. I'm Isn't here. that interesting that people project onto you what they think it must have been like? Yes. Yes. So again, the, the assumptions, the checking, the slowing down, I see it all the time with elderly people. Um, I'm sure you definitely do. Um, the not listening, um, you know, calm, t- calm down, take a breath. Um, and if you need a consultation, give one of us a call. <laughs> exactly. We have no one to call for help. Right. It's true. It's very true. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so glad that you came on the show. This was so much fun. And I feel like we could talk for hours. I'm looking forward to staying in touch with you and hearing about your career as it unfolds. Mm. Um, I loved your website. Oh. If you want to um, tell listeners what your website is so that they can visit it and also where people can find you on social media, if you chose to be, if you'd like to be found there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I would. Um, so our website is uh, disabled duo. So disabled with a D D U O.com. And um, anyone who's listening, you can also email me at Kate at disabled um, and on social media, um, on, let's see, let's see, we're on Instagram and Twitter, um, Facebook, um, a little bit less, um, but we are at disabled duo and facebook.com slash disabled duo. Um, Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Oh, thank you so much, Kim. This has been, um, yeah, I could, we could talk for hours. This has been <laughs> so much fun. Thanks. Take care. You too. You've been listening to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. For more information about the show, visit our website at www.em-podcast.com.